Hacktivism is erupting in response to the conflict between Israel and Hamas. And while there's no easy way to talk about these emotionally charged topics, they have grave implications. So let's get into it. I'm Matt Johansson, this is Vulnerable You, and I'm going to give you everything you need to know that's going on in cybersecurity this week in about 10 minutes. For those of you unfamiliar with what hacktivism is, it's when politically charged hacking groups launch cyber attacks either in protest or in solidarity to something going on in the world. These attacks can range in sophistication from simple website defacements all the way to like sophisticated phishing campaigns and data breaches. Three things come up for me in response to this news. First, these cyber attacks represent a digital manifestation of what's going on in real world conflict. Nowadays, when something politically charged goes on in the real world, there's going to be digital repercussions. Two, the variety of attacks. Yeah, sometimes it's just DDoS and defacement of government websites, but these attacks vary. Those of us on the front lines protecting our organizations have to keep an eye on things like this. How is threat actors behavior changing due to this real world conflict? And third, the global repercussions of things like this. In Israel, we're just seeing mostly DDoS, but in things like Russia and Ukraine, we're seeing attacks on power grids and supply chain manufacturers and all sorts of things. We've even seen Russia take entire countries off the internet when they were at conflict. I expect these types of attacks to ramp up as the weeks go on with this conflict, so I'm going to keep an eye on it and I'll let you know what we see. Talk about a perfect cybersecurity case study. Two casinos hacked, two casinos demanded ransom, one paid, one refused. Which of them made the right decision? Let's get into it. The attacks on MGM and Caesars have littered the news for a few weeks now. I know we've covered it, but the more we uncover about these attacks and the financials behind it, the more questions get raised about how we are going to respond in the future. MGM, following the guidance of the FBI, chose not to pay the attackers. The FBI's official stance on this cautions from paying because there's no guarantee that the victims are even going to get the data back and you're going to reward the bad guy, further encouraging them to go attack other victims. Caesars, on the other hand, paid roughly half of the $30 million demanded. They report that they've seen no operational impact in their day-to-day -day business. MGM, however, after not paying, saw disruption that wound up costing them $100 million. Their computer systems at their resorts were down for weeks. We saw lots of disruption. It cost them another $10 million on top of that $100 million just in incident response cost and lawyers. And while occupancy was down a little bit in September year over year, which they're blaming on this attack, here's the kicker. MGM had cybersecurity insurance, which they're saying is going to cover most of that $100 million. They had to report financial paperwork this week, and they're claiming that there will be no material loss. So I guess giving into the demands or refusing them didn't really make a difference for either casino when it came to the bottom line. I know I'm on team, don't pay the bad guys. I'm also on team, have your incident response playbook rock solid so you don't go down for weeks due to an attack like this. Not to be victim blaming, anyone can go down for this kind of stuff, but I don't like paying these people. It encourages them to keep doing it bigger and badder. Next up, we've got a Citrix vulnerability that we already talked about when it came out, but now there's a new report out of IBM that has discovered a campaign targeting those that have been slow to patch. This O-Day dropped in July, and by August, we reported that there was already hundreds of Citrix servers that were compromised and internet exposed that could be found on Shodan. And now, IBM's X-Force has uncovered a global phishing campaign targeting these Netscaler gateways. The attackers aim to harvest these credentials by deploying phishing pages that look like the Netscaler gateway login pages. Two things here. This attack seems really wide 
widespread. There doesn't seem to be a geolocation or sector target that the attackers are going after. And two, these phishing sites are pretty hard to spot because they're actually hosting them on compromised WordPress domains. By using these compromised domains, they get around a lot of other protections that you might have in place, like checking domain brand reputation, things like that. Think of it this way. If an attacker stands up a domain right away and does nothing but phishing on it, you might have some alerts that say, hey, this domain isn't legit. By using compromised WordPress domains, these sites were probably on the internet for some time for some legitimate purpose before they started hosting a phishing site there. This makes it harder to catch and easier to slip under the radar. Anyway, if you're running these Citrix products, get to patching, especially if these things are exposed on the internet. All right, excuse me while I get really excited about this one really quick. All right, now that I got that out of the way, listen up. Google has made passkeys the default login method for all users. The default authentication method for all users on Google is now not username and passwords. Is this a light at the end of the tunnel for passwords? I'm getting way ahead of myself, but I'm very excited. For those of you unfamiliar with passkeys, they use the same underlying technology of a YubiKey, Fido. But instead of a separate device, it's actually the same device that you're authenticating from. This is all thanks to new features in Apple's iOS 16 and newer, and Google's browsers, Chrome and Android. I love this for two reasons. First, Passkeys are a really good balance between usability and security. If you use them, you realize you don't have to type anything. You just log in from a known device. Super usable and they're fish proof. And two, I like this because it's on by default. All of us in security know if you bury a two-factor setting deep in someone's account settings, they're never gonna turn it on. But in this case, you actually have to opt out of Google setting, which is skip password when possible. Other big apps have already launched passkeys like Twitter and Uber, YouTube and WhatsApp. But Google's the first to make it on by default and I hope the others follow suit. I know I was getting ahead of myself by saying hey this is the end of passwords but this is way sooner than I thought Google was going to be able to do this. I'm really excited to see what comes of it. All right, next up, hackers have found a way to break all previous DDoS records using a feature built into the HTTP2 protocol. This is a zero-day vulnerability that they've dubbed Rapid Reset that leverages HTTP2's streaming cancellation feature. Basically, you send a request and cancel it over and over again. By automating this request cancel pattern at scale, attackers were able to take down any server using a standard implementation of HTTP2. The other really interesting part about this one is that they were able to do it with a trivial number of machines, something like 20,000, which is really small in terms of a botnet. Two reasons this one's important. Unprecedented scale. These attacks have topped two and a half terabytes per second, which smashes DDoS records. And second, this is a zero day. This was previously unknown, and the mitigation is actually pretty tricky. If you're interested, the write-ups this week came out from Google and Cloudflare. They go into the attack and how to mitigate it. The mitigation's tricky because you can't just cancel the request. You have to close the whole TCP connection. Closing the connection isn't hard, but figuring out which connections to close without it impacting normal users is the hard part. Either way, check out the write-ups in the description if you're interested in learning how to mitigate this. And hey, while you're down there, leave a like, comment, subscribe, share, all those fun things that YouTube likes. It really helps us out. All right, next up, we've got a record $7 billion in cryptocurrency that's been laundered through cross-chain services. There's a great report put out this week by Elliptic that breaks down all sorts of recent crypto scams, losses, and money laundering schemes. If you're unfamiliar 
familiar with these cross-chain services, they move cryptocurrency from one blockchain to another, which allows criminals a new method to hide the origin of the funds. This is interesting to me for two reasons. This is a new money laundering method. If you give anyone an option to move money around on the internet, criminals will use it for money laundering. And second, since it's new, the regulations haven't caught up. This report emphasizes the need for new oversight on these cross-chain services. Right now, it's the Wild West. Between this and the North Korean Lazarus Group stealing all sorts of cryptocurrency to fund who knows what, I'm interested to see what sort of regulations and different protections come out in the coming months and years in this area. All right, you all seem to like the quick summaries at the end of last week's video, so I'm going to do it again. Here's a bunch of stuff I thought was worth mentioning, but didn't fit into the longer video. First up, we have an academic research paper that went through a whole bunch of code snippets generated by GitHub's AI Copilot. TLDR, our jobs are safe in security. This academic paper shows in great detail their testing methodology of how they found the snippets and how they identified security weaknesses in them. But quick results show about 36% of the generated code snippets from Copilot contain security weaknesses. This spans across six different programming languages and they found 42 different types of security vulnerabilities. I expected a whole lot of cross-site scripting or something like that that would be easy to find and easy for an AI to generate, but no, these were actually serious flaws like OS command injection and remote code execution. Speaking of AI, Microsoft announced an update to its bug bounty program that includes all of its AI implementation. This is big news for all you bug bounty hunters out there. This is Greenfield, which is every bug hunter's favorite type of field. Microsoft's paying up to 15K for critical findings in things like inference manipulation, model manipulation, and inferential information disclosure. I'm interested here for two reasons. I think one, this is brand new scope for Microsoft and brand new scope is always really good for bug hunters to get to hacking. Two, I think the people that have the skill sets to actually identify these vulns in AI is probably a pretty small number. So if you're one of them, your competition is probably pretty slim for some of these bounties. All right, next up, last week we talked about the Confluence vulnerability. Well, this week, Microsoft is warning of a campaign via a nation state that's actually exploiting this vuln. The adversary is dubbed nickel and they're primarily focusing on disrupting government agencies and think tanks. Either way, if you rolled your own confluence, it's time to upgrade now, especially if it's on the internet. All right, who got all hyped up for a curl vulnerability that never happened? Well, not that it never happened, but it was much less severe than a lot of us were bracing for impact. If you didn't catch this one, one of the maintainers of curl actually announced on Twitter that there was a major security flaw that was going to come out in a few days. They announced they would drop the patch on October 11th. Well, they actually dropped it the night of the 10th and I saw a Twitter thread of a few people, including John Hammond, that actually identified the patch because they were keeping an eye out for it. We were all expecting something like Log4j and it was much less severe. It was a denial of service if you're using the SOX proxy part of curl, which a lot of people aren't. I'm not bummed that it turned into nothing and it wasn't like a big Log4j type thing. I am a little bummed that we all got worked up for nothing. All right, and last up, this one's a doozy. Thousands of Android devices shipped from the factory with a pre-installed unkillable backdoor. I can't top the opening line in this article, so I'm gonna read it word for word. When you buy a TV streaming box, there are certain things you wouldn't expect it to do. It shouldn't secretly be laced with malware or start communicating with servers in China when it's powered up. It definitely should not be acting as a node in an organized crime scheme making millions of dollars through fraud. However, that's the reality for thousands of unknowing people who own cheap Android TV devices. Come on, can't beat that. Go read the article, see if one of the devices you own is impacted. And that's all we got this week. Thanks so much for tuning in to Vulnerable You. Come back next week, we'll do another 10 minutes of everything you need to know in cybersecurity.